You're listening to Useful Science Podcast, produced in collaboration with the Moorhead Planetarium and Science Center. This week, we're talking about expiration dates. Useful Science is a website where we post one-sentence summaries of scientific research relevant to your everyday life. On this podcast, we bring on a rotating panel of our science contributors to pick out a few items from the Useful Science archives and dive deep into them. So while the website gives you the short, tweetable version of scientific research, our goal here is to give you the full story. Let's meet our hosts for this week. Hi, I'm Avneesh Nagla. I'm a PhD student in theoretical biophysics at UCSD, and I'm currently doing research on how bacteria coexist. Hi, I'm Susan Rogers Van Ketwijk. I'm an investigator at the Global Strategy Lab at York University in Toronto, where I study global policies on infectious disease threats. And my name is Cameron Spencer. I'm not a scientist. I'm a web developer and a web designer, and I work on the Useful Science, uh, the Useful Science website. So Avneesh, let's dive into your article. Sure. So the article I have today is actually not a scientific article. It is a report. I brought it up because as I was reading it, I was very infuriated at learning at all of the practices in the food industry. And I thought that it would be very good for people to understand it. And I would highly recommend people read this article. It is um, called The Dating Game, How Confusing Food Date Labels Lead to Food Waste in America. It was published by the Natural Resource Defense Council, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization in the U.S., which is focusing on protecting natural resources. And this was done in partnership with the Harvard Food Law and Policy Clinic, which focuses in particular on uh, issues related to food safety and other food laws. So... They published this brief where they go over the history of food uh, uh, labeling practices in the U.S., uh, the current regime, how it varies, and the shortcomings of the current system. And then they go on to make some recommendations. The document may seem intimidating at 64 pages, but it's actually just around 15 to 20 pages once you remove all of the appendices and everything. So... I would highly recommend people go and read this because it's like it reading a New York article. It is. Yeah. One of the long <laughs> forms. Which, yeah. And it honestly reads like a New Yorker article. That's another thing. <laughs> I was just going to ask, this was written in collaboration with researchers, with scientists, uh, but not peer reviewed. So this wasn't a science article. It's a policy article. So they cite science results but they were mostly looking at the status of policy. Okay. Yeah. So it, it is very much in tandem with science, but they're kind of cutting to the chase, but it says that right now there is no science of date labels in the U.S. because that is not a correct concept. You hmm. cannot associate food safety hmm with the date labels and in fact there is no correlation at all so asking the question of what the dates should be is in fact an ill-posed question in some sense they do address some scientific solutions we'll get to all of this but yeah it's it's a very fascinating read i would highly recommend it so they start off by talking about the impact of um having a good regulation of food and food waste. in, And this is an absurd statistic, but 40% of the food in the U.S. is wasted. 40, 4-0? Four, 4-0. Zero. Four, zero. Wow. 
I actually have a, a similar number for Europe from the article that I read. It said uh, five to ten percent of food gets wasted at the level of the retailer, and thirty to forty percent in people's homes. Okay, this I think doesn't even account for food being wasted after it's prepared. So this is only food that could have been consumed and wasn't consumed. It's not food that went bad and wasn't consumed. Oh, interesting. As far as I understand, I didn't go through the citations in detail, but that's how they broke it down. But they said that even if they routed 30% of the food that was wasted, that would cure food insecurity in the US. Also, on top of that, this it'll, there's hundreds of millions of acres of land that could be saved and could be routed to environmentally beneficial projects. Yeah, so that gave a kind of in, in, uh, a structure and a motivation for why they want to do this uh, and why it's so important. But they talk about the main reasons why the food labels contribute to the waste of edible food. And the first thing is that there is a lack of binding federal standards. So in the 70s, a lot of people tried to do this. They tried to bring a lot of regulation, but there wasn't any movement, mostly because of lobbying, as you would expect. But also what happened at that point was the supermarket said, hey, let us take the initiative and we are going to put a sell-by date. And the sell-by date will inform the consumers. And they did this on a voluntary basis without any regulations. Later in the 1990s, when people wanted to make a, a stronger case and say, okay, you have to put something related to safety. So, so about sell-by dates, sell-by dates actually do not communicate anything to the consumer. They are purely an inventory object. So because food production is continuously happening, you do not want to just keep the old stock in the front and the new stock at the back. Because if you do that, then what happens is that the old stock will start going, uh, the new stock will start going bad before you finish the old stock. Does that make sense? Yeah, you want to sell the old stuff first, right? Yeah, but not only that, you don't want to like try to finish all of the old stuff. Because if you're trying to maximize for quality, right, then even if the old stuff is still good to sell, it's still a good idea to sell it. Uh, to not sell it so that you can sell some of the new stuff. Because otherwise, by the time you sell the old stuff, the new stuff will have become too old. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it's basically the idea that you want to keep your shelf moving, even if it does not actually uh, indicate any degree of freshness or safety. And previously, before the 1970s, the supermarkets and uh, manufacturers used to put codes some lettering, some alphanumeric code that only they understood. And so in the 1970s, they shifted to something called open dating, uh, which is that the, it has a readable format in month, day, year, and so forth. And then you can understand, okay, it says 4th of April, 2019. That means that I have to sell by this date. And it is communicated to the consumers. But actually, it does not communicate health or safety. In the 1990s, when they wanted to put actual health and safety restrictions in place, the supermarket said, hey, in the 70s, we 
did this voluntarily. If you start putting restrictions on us now, you're not honoring the fact that we voluntarily did something. And this will discourage us from later voluntarily doing things. Also, all of the different states have different laws. So if now you impose a federal law, that will be undermining state authority. So for a long time, nothing happened in the 90s. Similarly, in the 2000s, a lot of bills came in, but none of them passed the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Now, this is entirely something that the government can do. There are lots of agencies and laws which reserve the right of the U.S. federal government to enact such laws, but they just don't because of the lobbying of the food industry. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So that brings us to the current state where basically there, there is no unified regulatory mechanism across the U.S. States and local authorities have all sorts of different categories and uh, restrictions on not just all, uh, all sorts of food, but also what kind of food and so forth. So firstly, most there's inconsistency on whether there should be a date label at all. There are uh, eight states that do not have any restrictions. On top of that, the second level is what date category they should put. So there are approximately, there are basically three categories of labels. One is the sell-by date that I was talking to you about. That was the inventory and that was not associated with consumers. Then the second is the safety category. So this is the one that would be the most important to the consumer. If it is consumed by a certain date, then it should be safe for my consumption. The third is a quality date. So this is best before or best if used by. And this is mostly saying, hey, food goes bad after a certain time. You can't judge the quality of food, even if it is safe, after a certain time. That's the best before date. So that's the category. And different states have different regulations on which category to apply. Then there is uh, inconsistency because of interpretations of these different categories. For example, the best before date. When is something good enough to eat? Obviously, hotcakes are great when they come out of the oven, but they're fine a couple of days later. Are they fine a week later? It's a good question. So there's inconsistency in that because there are no formal legal definitions, right? I've always thought that, you know, best before dates are like, yeah, you can eat this box of crackers and they're totally going to be safe, but I definitely can't guarantee that they're going to be crispy anymore. They might be getting kind of stale. Yeah, that is a good interpretation of it. Though the important thing that something else that they talk about is how all of these food labels and so forth aren't actually associated with date. They found that there is no correlation with food safety and the date. And even the U.S. authorities, such as the Office for Technological Assessment and other U.S. agencies, have said that you cannot estimate the date by which the safety of the product is still fine. And you can you can make a, an estimate, but what really matters is the temperature and time history of the product. So if I hear what you're saying right just because something is before that best before date doesn't necessarily mean it's safe. And just because something is past that best before date also doesn't mean it's safe or unsafe. Absolutely. And they found no correlation 
in stomach-related diseases and consumption of food past the expiration date. None at all? I mean, at some point, like if you're going to eat year-old hamburger meat, like, there's got to be some point at which we can we can say that, like, yes, if it's past a certain age, it, it, it it's very likely to not not be healthy to eat. Yeah. So it's a great question. <laughs> it says the report published in 2011, I, I didn't go through all of the citations, found no direct evidence linking foodborne illness in the United Kingdom to consumption of food parts as expiration. Uh, the second line was food safety experts agree that absent, absent time and temperature abuse, so without knowing the temperature time history, when food is remained too long at temperatures favorable at growth to food bond mechanisms. So uh, uh, unless that is the case, many food products will be safe past their date labels, uh, other than some exceptions. So that sounds to me like they had to base it on observational data, which means that most people probably aren't eating hamburger a year past the time that it was cooked <laughs> to be able to find out that you get food poisoning from that. Yeah, that's probably the case. Yeah. So it's a sort of normal use eating past the expiration date. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they say that even if the date expires during home storage, a product should be safe, wholesome, and of good quality if handled properly and kept at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or below. So if you're keeping it in a pantry, in a cool, dry place, that's not going to be, you're not going to have a lot of interactions with microbial organisms or whatever, then it should be fine. Open it, smell it. If it's moldy, then obviously it's not. But otherwise, just because you're four or five months past the due date, do not fret. I should say it's probably worth having a caveat that this is all food safety stuff and not drug safety stuff, which has very different expiration dates. Absolutely. That's that's very, very important. Also, based on my reading, it seems that there are different restrictions when it comes to infant food. Yeah. So what I found out is that here in Canada, at least, there is like a true expiry sort of safety thing for products like infant formula and meal replacements, where you're expecting mm -hmm. that when you consume it, it contains like an exact amount of nutrients. And so then yeah. there's a date by which they can't guarantee that it's like full strength and safe to consume for the nutrients that are supposed to be in there. Okay, that's good to know. Another important exception are ready-to-eat foods. So stuff that you could just open up and then heat up and eat. Uh, there is the risk of Listeria monocytogenes. So for that, you have to be a bit more careful. And if you see a use by date, almost you should definitely stick to it. So, but we, we can't all be food safety experts. Right. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to evaluate whether or not any given item in my pantry is safe to eat. So I need some heuristic. I hope I'm using that mm -hmm. word right. I need some some vague idea that I can that I can go off of to know whether or not I should eat this thing, even if it's not perfect. I mean, don't don't dates on our products help provide that? I think that the range of time that an expiration date covers can can vary a lot between different products and stuff. So it might be more useful heuristic as a like, how long must I have had this in my cupboard for kind of mechanism? I think the key is that just because, you know, something in your cupboard says that it, you should use by today, that doesn't necessarily mean that tomorrow it's going to be unsafe. But if you find that thing a year from now, you should maybe reconsider whether or not you actually need to eat that or not. 
But still, the sort of check for mold, does it smell okay kind of thing will help you out a lot more in the sort of in-between cases. But it sounds a little bit like we're saying that we shouldn't put dates on the food at all. Uh, no, not exactly. So what? So one of the things is we should put, they have recommendations around this. And firstly, they say that you should not have sell-by dates. Sell-by dates communicate nothing and they only confuse the consumers. So that's the first thing. The second thing they say is it's important to talk about food handling because what is going to make the food edible or not is the history of the food. So if you have it out in the sun for a really long time, then the best before date itself is not even a good that, a good indicator. You should be you should stop consuming it much before. They propose a, a smart label. You get these labels that basically integrate over temperature over time. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah, and they turn gray at one point. I mean, they're probably more expensive. They do say that it's going to be more expensive, but they say it's, that is a great way of saying. And then you can put an and condition, consume by this date, which could be a liberal date very far away, uh, determined scientifically by going through uh, the studies of the food itself. And this label does not turn gray. And if you know that it has turned gray, then it's gone. So it's important for us to know the history of the product. If you got it from the supermarket and you came out and then you put it outside in a very hot area, then be a bit more cautious regarding that. So that's the first thing. Second thing is they, they were talking about how consumers should just be better judges of if food can still be consumed. So... There are uh, visual red flags. There are uh, other sensory indicators such as smell, which are much better indicators of whether food is good to eat or not than the date that you find on the label. I'm just on the FDA website at the moment, and it says, you know, are foods safe to eat after the expiration date passes? Uh, and with the exception of infant formula, products should still be safe and wholesome if handled properly until the time spoilage is evident. And spoiled foods will develop an odor, uh, an off flavor, a uh, texture that's weird uh, due to naturally occurring spoilage bacteria. If a food has developed such spoilage characteristics, it should not be eaten. Exactly. And in fact, what's hilarious is that the industry, when advocating for not using expiration dates, said this. They said, hey, honestly, the food we are selling if it's bad, it's evident. So we do not need to have standardized dates to tell if the food is bad because it should be evident in the food itself. Well, evident once you've opened it. Like I can't sniff, yeah. I can't sniff the milk before I buy it. True enough. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, there should be restrictions on whether you should be allowed to sell it, which do exist in a lot of states. So that is not as much of a concern. Uh, or if you do find an issue, then you should be able to go back to the supermarket and say, hey, this product has gone bad. So you put, if you put a date on packaging, people are going to interpret it as a hard cutoff. That's, I think that's just human nature. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to read, you know, if it's a sell by date or a use by date or a best by date, they're just going to see it and interpret it as a hard, a hard cutoff. I wonder if I, you could go ahead. Do you disagree with that? No, no. I was actually going to say, I also often just find that those are really hard to read. Like the mm, date yeah. itself you know, they'll say M and okay, M is a month. It might be March <laughs> or May or I don't know. Or if it says 0115-2020 and you're like, I wonder if that's January. Oh, one five was a bad example because there's no month. <laughs> that, that's 15, but. 
<laughs> like we we Americans like to put our month before our day, which is yes, not not an international standard. And in the UK, they put the day before the month, but in Canada, right. because we follow in both traditions, you honestly sometimes just have no idea. My my brain as a as a as a software developer, I like to put the year first. So I'd like to put twenty twenty oh one fifteen because you go from the because then it sorts it it'll sort by date in a sorted list. Anyways, <laughs> I was gonna say I wonder if you could I wonder if you could design a label that expresses that expresses more uncertainty. Right? If you saw a label that almost gave you a timeline, and maybe on July fifteenth it's green, and then on August first it's it's like orange, and then on August fifteenth it's red, and kind of gave you this kind of more of a general indication of of like where you might be in that safety threshold and then you can, you know, encourage you to evaluate it yourself. You know, if the label says that it's orange yeah. this time, then maybe it's safe or maybe it's not. You should, you should kind of give it a sniff and see. I'd also love to know because different foods are, I mean, very, very different. Like what, what is going to happen at a later point? Like I'd love to have one on a bag of chips, that's you know, crunchy until January, 2021, <laughs> right? Like that's what I really want to know. At what point are these potato chips, you know, soft and not worth eating anymore? Mm-hmm. Cameron, to address your question. Uh, so there are smart labels. I don't think they have that degree of granularity that you're talking about. I'm not suggesting a smart label. I'm suggesting like a, a dumb label that, that has a design that suggests more uncertainty. It encourages consumers to, to, to make that evaluation themselves with more of a general guideline as opposed to this one date that feels like a hard cutoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's reasonable. But again, I think you still run into the similar issues as earlier because the agreed that it's a spectrum, but the shape of the function changes drastically based on the temperature time history. So mm, yeah. another thing that they propose is having a QR code on the package. So once you buy it, you can, and the QR code would be unique for each product. And that basically has a history of where it has been because all of the companies, they have to scan the barcodes as well when they are doing inventory and moving everything. And if they're doing it, all of that information could just be sent to the QR code. You open the QR code on your phone and then you get a history of when it was at a certain temperature, when it was moved, and also what that tells to some extent about the food itself and whether it's safe to consume or not. Hmm. Sounds impractical. <laughs> like like the grocery store's got to scan every every bottle, huh? No, but you yeah. don't have to, right? You don't have to. So the idea would be when the grocery stores are doing this, then they will be doing it by batches right mm-hmm. oh so, i see it's the whole box of it's the whole box of bottles of milk exactly and then yeah. you could have different degrees of uh coarseness and then so the when the warehouse does it they just do the entire truck or whatever and that applies to all of the qr codes inside but then for you as a customer you care about individual ones and then when you open it you get all of them i think that's probably more information than i'd be looking for I like the idea of there being dates and QR codes that can be used at the store level or the school level or, you know, whoever's actually doling out the food. But for my own cupboard, I only really need to know whether this particular, you know, box of crackers has been in my cupboard for a month or for like 18 months. Mm -hmm. That's fair. That's completely fair. I think what they are proposing is a larger cultural shift. 
which I understand. Like right now, when I read that paragraph as well, I was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to whip out my phone every time I want to have a bag of chips, right? But something else that they talk about, Cameron, uh, Susan, t- taking your point, is that even the supermarket employees don't actually know what these labels mean. Hmm. Yeah. So if you went and asked, oh, is that fine to consume? In all likelihood, the supermarket employee won't know that. They know what inventory should be stocked in and out, but they do not know about so- safety or usage standards. Can we talk about the sniff test? <laughs> sure. Is that good enough? You know, if the milk smells okay, should I drink the milk? I mean, that seems to be what the FDA website is saying. Sniff it, taste it. If it tastes off, don't keep drinking it. It seems to be the best indicator rather than relying on some date. Uh, should we should we wrap up this article or any, anything else on it? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's basically all that I had to say. I would highly recommend going through it. There are lots of little gems that people would really enjoy. Uh, if anything, even if you don't want to read 20 pages, you can read the executive summary, which is just a couple of pages and basically goes over what I was just talking about. But it, it's it's really good and it's good to be informed as well regarding all of these different practices. Yeah, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, like always. And this is not always the case for our articles, but this one you actually can read, like the whole thing's available for free, or at least we have a PDF of it. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be available. Uh, it is. is. Do we know if this is like an open access thing or if, it, if we just happen to get lucky with finding somebody who published a PDF? It looks like it's up on their website. It looks like it's open access. Okay, great. Okay, so Susan, let's move on to your article. Great. Okay. Uh, So my article is called Consumer Behavior Towards Price-Reduced Suboptimal Foods in the Supermarket and the Relation to Food Waste in Households. And really, what this article is talking about uh, is about food waste and ways to prevent food waste. Uh, And these stickers that you start seeing put on different different foods uh, in the grocery store to say, you know, this is just about to be past its expiration date, so we're cutting the price, and you can take it home and cook it today. And I'm sure lots of lots of grocery stores have started doing this, so you've probably seen something like that. Uh, and so that's what they mean by suboptimal food, um, either like ugly vegetables and stuff, or other foods that are getting close to their expiration date. And they start off this article really just by talking about food waste as a challenge a little bit. Uh, And I said already in Europe where this article was done, they did this in Denmark. uh, The estimates were that uh, like food is wasted like five to 10% of food at the retailer level, and then 30 to 40% of food at homes. And the idea of these stickers and being able to reduce the price on food uh, that's getting close to its expiration date is that that should stop um, or like help prevent food waste at the level of the grocery store. But what this article was concerned about is, you know, do people really then take that food home and use it? Or are we actually just moving this process along and that just ends up becoming food waste at the household level because it's cheaper and people just buy more or buy it on a whim or something like that. And what they wanted to do was really just kind of dig in a little bit further into what people were thinking about when they were considering buying those reduced priced foods and what kind of considerations and trade-offs and things like that they were thinking about or whether that was just sort of, it's cheap, let's buy it. And so that's that's the study that they did. Um, And they do talk a little bit about reasons for food waste. And so they say it's, first of all, it's lack of planning. Second of all, lack of cooking skill, which is legitimate. (laughs) 
third is misunderstanding the date labels. So as Avanish has already very, very well explained. Uh, and then the last one is uh, demanding high levels of perfection in food. Uh, so people tend to not want to buy the food that is, you know, the apple that has a bruise or the bananas that are starting to brown and things like that. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting because here in Canada, there's a grocery chain uh, that has started putting foods like that, the sort of like ugly fruit at a lower price and calling it naturally imperfect food. Uh, and so you can buy an entire bag full of apples that are like just a little bit too small or like just a little bit dented and things like that at a lower price. So I thought this was quite an interesting article. Okay, so what did they actually do here? The goal was two things. Uh, first, they wanted to find out the consumer's consideration of the offer of price-reduced uh, like suboptimal foods in store, um, which they call expiration date pricing. And then secondly, they wanted to figure out whether consumers um, kind of like sought out price promotions and, and made those trade-offs when they were shopping. So they did this in two ways. The first one was that they did interviews with people who were doing their grocery shopping in Denmark. So they picked one grocery store uh, and they had two interviewers who were actually interviewing people and one asking or one kind of taking notes throughout the process. And they basically just approached people that were going into the grocery store and said, hey, can we come shopping with you as part of this interview project about food safety? Uh, and the idea of the interview format that they used was that it was a think aloud interview. So they kept prompting people to just say everything that came into their head while they were doing their shopping, all the things you would sort of think to yourself while you were doing your shopping. They asked them to just say it all out loud so they could capture that, which I think is a really fun kind of way of doing an interview. And they said that the advantage of this um, was that they could gather a whole bunch of like deliberate, but also sort of spontaneous thoughts that people had while they were doing their shopping. Uh, and at the same time, they got to sort of observe the person being interviewed in the grocery store at a time when they were really going shopping. Uh, so it had sort of more external validity in that way than if they set up a fake grocery store and tried to do this as a, like as an experiment or as a hypothetical or something like that. Uh, and they pre-tested their whole set of interviews with three people just so they could get comfortable doing it. And then uh, ended up doing 16 interviews, like 16 real interviews. Uh, and they just, they basically just interviewed until they got to saturation point, which is to say, once they stopped hearing like new ideas and new themes from the people that they were interviewing, they just stopped doing interviews at that point. Uh, and just to avoid having sort of bias based around like self-selection, they had some quotas for gender and age and students and non-students and things like that. Um, yeah. And so basically they went into the grocery store and they asked people to go about shopping for all the things they were usually going to shop for. Uh, and then to make sure that at some point during the shopping experience, they ran across these um, reduced price groceries. They also asked the shoppers to have uh, to look for five things like hypothetically that they would potentially not have been shopping for before. Uh, and they had a whole list of groceries that were considered just like normal things that people in Denmark would buy like cheese and milk and rye bread and chicken and pork and sausages and things like that. Uh, and they knew every day that they went in to do these interviews, which um, ones were like reduced price that day. And so they just make a new list every day of things that were reduced price and ask the, the consumer, ask the grocery shopper to go and also look at those 
and talk through what they would be thinking about if they were going to buy those. Uh, and so that was actually really interesting. Um, and they followed it up with a an online study with more than 800 people just asking them similar sort of questions in an online survey. But I think the really interesting results come from doing that grocery shopping with the 16 people. So... Susan, if I can ask a question, um, I, I really like this entire exercise of going and following people and then seeing how they shop. Though 16 does seem like a very small sample size. It's not a small sample size for this kind of qualitative interview. Um, huh, okay. Yeah, it's fairly common in doing qualitative research that you go to saturation. And when you stop hearing new things, that's when you're able to stop doing the interviews. Um so yeah, it's it's small by what you would expect if you were doing a quantitative study, but since this was a qualitative study, 16 is is pretty fair. Okay. And also, I didn't quite catch it, but they were, were they diversifying the uh, range of people? Because I'm just seeing the table and it has mostly single household people and it, it doesn't seem to have the diversity that I would expect. Uh, they had some quotas for the people um, that they were interviewing at the grocery store to try and get older, younger, and things like that. Uh, so it's in table one. They had somebody as old as 94 years old, or sorry, 92 years old, um, who had a single household. Uh, but they also had some 22, 23-year-old students, male and female, uh, that they interviewed okay. as well, and some sort of you know families and things too. Okay, yeah, I counted in this 10 single household. I don't know if that's out of range or if that... Again, I don't even know if that's an issue. I've never really done qualitative studies. So. Yeah, I uh, I can't speak to that necessarily. It's, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I think they're illustrating examples. So if they say they got to saturation, then, uh, then they must not have been hearing too much that was different from people in single households than people in uh, bigger households. Okay. Also, is there any bias due to the supermarket itself? Yeah, they they did. They wondered about it a little bit. They said it was uh, one supermarket in the city. Uh, and so they can't necessarily speak to whether, you know, a supermarket on the outskirts of town or out in a rural area would have had a slightly different clientele. Uh, but it was part of a large chain, I believe, of supermarkets. Uh, so they suspected that the people who were shopping there would probably be fairly representative in that respect. Um, but certainly they suggested that, you know, if you wanted to be trying to talk about every, every, every person, um, then you would have to do a little bit more research. But they were kind of just interested in this one supermarket for the qualitative aspect. And then they did the online survey to try and see whether that matched with um, what people thought more widely. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And so the result really was that they found that people had two different sets of considerations that they took into account. And I think the really important finding that they had was that they took these two things into account while they were still standing in the store thinking about buying something. Uh, and on the one hand, it was package unit and size considerations. And then on the other hand, it was around product related and household related. So product related things were things like the package unit and size, and whether it was dividable, you know, how long until the expiration date, uh, and whether they thought they could store it. Uh, and they were thinking about all of these things in terms of like, you know, is this something I'm going to be able to use considering the package size? 
Uh, and so there is a quote here that says, you know, if these are not good apples, then six apples is too many apples to throw away. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, people would, would think a little bit about like, you know, is this something that I can just throw in the freezer? If I can just throw in the freezer, then it's not a problem. Um, and then there were also the household factors that they considered, which were things like, how big is my household? Do I have a freezer? And do I have a big enough freezer to be able to take this home with me? Is there a meal that I can think of that I am going to use for this, use this grocery for? Uh, And is this something that would be in kind of high demand in my household? Uh, And so there's actually a quote from somebody with a family uh, who was talking about buying bread. And it said, sorry, so it was a family that was talking about how, you know, when they buy a loaf of bread, it doesn't last much longer than two days anyways, because there's three of them all taking sandwiches for lunch. Um, and so it goes really fast. And so it doesn't matter if it's just before its expiration date because it'll get used before the expiration date anyways. That's the opposite problem I have. <laughs> it's also the opposite problem that I have. But I tend to be somebody who throws everything in the freezer and just uses it a bit at a time. I sound like a lot of people, we're having the same problem that I have, which is that it's hard to get food in quantities that make sense for me. I wish yeah. I could buy, I wish I could buy half a loaf of bread because... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna eat enough sandwiches to go through that whole loaf of bread before it starts going stale. Yeah, and people did seem to have this concern about not wanting to waste food. It was something that they were thinking about. You know, I don't want to buy this whole loaf of bread if I'm going to end up having to throw out most of the loaf of bread when it goes stale because I didn't get around to eating it. Um, and so I think that was really one of the findings from this paper overall was it wasn't just that people were like, oh, great, a half price loaf of bread. They were like, mm, actually, I, you know, I am or I'm not going to be able to use this. And so they made a decision in the store about whether or not they actually thought it would be a useful product for them to buy. One of the interesting things that they found was that people weren't really thinking about safety concerns, though. Uh, so people weren't really worried about whether it would actually go bad. Susan, I have one question. So when they were doing this, how much was it purely a selfish decision and how much were they actually, there was a certain ethics of food wastage involved. So let's say that I could buy something at half price and I knew that I would probably waste maybe 40 to 50% of it. So it would still make economic sense for me to buy something, but it would be bad because I would be wasting the food. Is that uh, uh, taking it away from someone else who might use the entire amount of food? Was that an ethical concern that they had or was it purely price optimization? I don't think that anybody that they interviewed was thinking about it as a sort of taking it away from others kind of thing. Um, There were people in their sample who um, did have a lot of concerns about food waste, Um, you know, some saying it's something with us older ladies. We don't like to throw things out um, on people who thought, you know, it's a pity to waste food. But at the same time, people were really like they didn't want to take on this problem from the grocery store. So they didn't want to buy, you know, reduced price food just because it might go to waste at the grocery store level if they thought that it would end up going to waste at their home as well. And so what they liked was the sort of win-win situation where the grocery store has reduced the price, 
on something that they already would have wanted to use anyways, or something that would have, you know, been used quickly at their house. And then they didn't seem to see any challenges with buying that reduced priced one, because, you know, it was uh, solving a food waste issue on the grocery store side, and they were getting this price reduction that was great for them too. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That's what I would do. So I'm, I'm sorry, what was the conclusion? Like, we're looking at are these are these stickers that encourage people to buy food that's close to its expiration date resulting in less food waste? Like, do we know? So we don't know whether it's resulting in less food waste overall. Um, but I think their bigger concern was, is this just transferring when the food waste happens? Instead of food waste happening at the grocery store level, are people just buying this and then wasting it when it gets home? And it sounds like from the people they interviewed and from the online survey that they did, um, that consumers were weighing the pros and cons and they weren't just buying stuff because it was cheap or buying more than they usually would just because it was cheap. So it seems like, at least from this one study, retailers can go ahead and do these reduced price um, things on food without worrying that all of that food is just going to get chucked out at home by the consumer in the long run. Because Which it's not good. it's not driving like impulse buying. It's not, so it's driving, not driving impulse buying. It's not buying. driving people to buy stuff they don't need. I got it. Exactly. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. So it seems like at least this is a, you know, one strategy that can be used um, to make sure that food doesn't get thrown out at the grocery store level that consumers might actually want to eat. Well, all right then. So we're yeah. telling if you own a grocery store, consider this. And if you are a consumer, consider the sniff test <laughs> as opposed to going off of just the date on the packaging. Yeah. And maybe we can put these two studies together a little bit just because something is about to hit its expiry date doesn't mean that you shouldn't buy it, especially if it's something that you were already going to buy that you use in your house fairly often. Um, maybe this is actually a great opportunity to get a deal. Agreed. Do we know what grocery stores are doing this? Do we know what chain it was? Uh, I probably can't pronounce the one in Denmark that they actually did ah. this interview at. Um, but I know that uh, the grocery store that I typically go to here in Canada, which is Loblaws, uh, definitely does this. Um, you'll see them put out marked down meats and marked down produce um, and sometimes even things like boxes of crackers. I don't think I've noticed this in the grocery stores that I go to, which is mostly a safe, mostly safe way. Interesting. I mean, there's, there's always stuff on markdown. I always assume that it's just, I, I never assumed that it was for that reason. I always assumed it was just because they were, they wanted to move some product. Um, but I don't know, maybe there is, maybe they, they are doing it because yeah. they're trying to get rid of old stuff. I think I that know. the grocery store I use here has done some good um, branding on it. So they've got a sticker that they put, especially on meat when they're selling it just before mm. uh, the expiry date that says like, use tonight. Another pro tip is that if you're near a university town, then there are a lot of food recovery groups that will get donations from the grocery stores of food that is about to go bad or just not even about to go bad, as we discussed, not going to go bad, but past the expiration date. So if you're a student in a university town, try to look for a food recovery organization near you. I thought you were going to talk about dumpster divers. when you, when you <laughs> That is an option. I do not judge people for their preferences of where they get food. What do they call it? It's like fritarian, something like that. People who <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. All right. Shall we wrap things up? Let's do it. Yeah. Sounds good. 
Well, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find the show notes uh, in your podcasting app. You can see the links to the articles that we talked about. Uh, we also post uh, the episodes for discussion on Reddit at our subreddit, which is slash r slash useful science. We always like hearing from listeners. So you can email us at podcast at usefulscience.org. You can follow us on Twitter at usefulsci, and you can find us on Facebook by just searching for useful science. We want to thank Moorhead Planetarium and our excellent editor there, Vivian Lee. We want to thank the composer of our intro music, Solomon Krauss Imla. My name is Cameron Spencer. You can follow me on Twitter if you'd like, at USonic, E-U-S-O-N-I-C. My name is Avnish. Uh, and I'm Susan. You can follow me on Twitter at SuzyRVK. That's S-U-Z-Y-R-V-K. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a very useful week. All right. Great episode. I plug my Twitter, but it's not like I actually post there. (laughs) Maybe someday I will. It just seems like the thing you do in a podcast is you plug your Twitter account. That's what what everybody does, right? (laughs) Here's what I should say. I should say, my name is Cameron Spencer. I make websites. You should hire me. (laughs) That would be a better plug, Cameron. Go to lab43.com and you can see the work I do.